Welcome to our episodes podcast, where we explore teaching and learning in a digital age. My name is Philippa Kruger, and I'm the Global Head of Languages at Education Perfect. In this episode, I chat to Beck Ramsey, who is one of our amazing teacher consultants here at EP, based in South Australia. Beck is an experienced teacher with a passion for e-learning and helping students reach their full potential. She has recently joined the EP team and is enjoying working with teachers throughout South Australia and helping them to use EP effectively in the classroom. She has spent the last six years as a pedagogy coordinator at Open Access College, the Department for Education's only online school, so she has a lot of experience in remote learning and distance education. I thought it would be helpful at this time to chat to Beck about some of the strategies she's used for engaging students in the remote learning environment. Thank you so much for joining us today. I was wondering if you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you've ended up where you are now. So started teaching a long time ago and um, in country South Australia um, as a home ec teacher. Um, I've always loved learning, so I've I retrained um, in media and digital tech. Always probably loved tech, to be perfectly honest. And then I had a bit of time out of teaching um, where I worked in as a general manager in a business, came back to teaching because I really miss kids and learning. And I went back to an online school, Open Access College, and which is where I discovered Education Perfect. We used it for three years and it was a fantastic platform for our kids. And here I am today. So obviously you've got a background in teaching in a remote learning environment. Can you sort of, what are some of the challenges that you found in that environment? The biggest challenge I found was I couldn't see my kids. And when I couldn't see my kids, I realized a lot of what we do as teachers is nonverbal. We look for the confusion on their faces or the smile on their faces or their eyes not being um, out the front or they're looking down at their phone under the desk. We rely on that. We rely on our faces a lot to when we're communicating with kids. So that was number one. All I had was my voice because we didn't have video either. And that just took me ages to get used to. I couldn't see who I was communicating with. And that was really difficult. Um, That probably took me six months to get used to. Did you have any strategies for overcoming that to kind of dealing with that particular challenge? I learned to use other tools around me. So we had text chat and there were a lot of emojis in there. So I would use them and then the kids would start using them. So we sort of went from visual nonverbal clues to um, emojis and, you know, the emoji clapping or the happy face or the green tick. Yes, I get it. And my dialogue as a teacher changed over time. So if I was trying to check if the kids were with me, I'd say green tick, red cross, how are we going? And they'd know green tick meant, yes, I'm with you. I, I get it. Red cross, you need to go back over it. And But we had to talk about that. So I'd say, when I ask you how you're going, if you give me a green tick, that means I'm okay and I know what you're talking about. A red cross means I'm not really sure. Can you explain it again? And I learned two things. One, I asked double questions and that took me a long time to get out of the habit of doing. The second thing is that um, when I taught, I I didn't go slow enough. I went really fast. I spoke really fast. I sort of ran with what was in my head and I had to slow that down and I had to just really, I, I really was a lot more thoughtful about what I said um, because that was much more important. 
some really good strategies for dealing with the lack of nonverbal cues using the emojis. That's a great idea. Mm. What about are there any other challenges that you can think of? Um, there are a number. Um, so apart from the personally, how you feel not being able to see what you're doing, not being able to see who you're working with. Um, your inability to control the learning environment that the kids were in was really confronting for me because I always liked my classroom to be quite orderly and um, the kids were home. Some kids had really well set up areas. Other kids um, were in their bedroom with their gaming computer on next to them. Other kids were in the kitchen and there were four small children in the family screaming and crying. So that inability to control that um, and I really had to learn to suspend judgment about how people lived, which I didn't think I did, but you do. <laughs> and everyone does. Um, and I think as educators, we value education. So how we set up our own homes supports that. But a lot of people aren't like that and they don't understand it. And so I learned to get in touch with parents fairly early and say, is it possible that maybe the little ones could go outside and play while this is happening? Or could they go into your bedroom when they have their lesson? Or just trying to get to know the family and then come up with solutions for that. So that was a really big challenge. And there's really no hard and fast rule about how you fix that. You just have to know your families and the situation the kids are in. So knowing your students becomes really important when you're teaching remotely. The other thing is the role of parents um, because what I didn't had no idea and didn't even think about would happen when I started teaching remotely is that they actually sit in your classes. Gosh, yes, I hadn't thought of that. And they're watching everything you do and say and sometimes it would be them in the class and not their kids. That's the extreme end. But the, the role of parents changes significantly in remote learning. Um, so that's, and we probably should talk about that as a separate thing. <laughs> Maybe um, can come back to that and have a have a chat about that at the, at the end, perhaps. Um, and in terms of sort of how you organise the structure of your courses, I mean, it's quite different to traditional classroom. Did you have a template that you used or how did you go about structuring your, your courses? When I first started, I would structure them sort of how I would teach in the classroom. And I found that I couldn't get very much done. Um, the kids were really dependent on me. And if I wasn't there, the learning stopped. And that was a problem because we only had one hour a day. Well, it was 45 minutes actually was the lesson. And you got one lesson a week per subject. So it's not very much contact time. It was really minimal contact time. and But we still had to cover all of the Australian curriculum achievement standards for that year level. What we did was we did a lot of research and we actually were fortunate enough to work with John Bergman personally. He worked with our school and we did adopt a version of the flip learning and we called it before, during and after. And this is where Education Perfect really came into its own because we would set the work that is just that initial learning, that prior knowledge, the information and those basic recall questions which is, you know, I suppose, the old chalk and talk where we'd introduce something and tell the kids um, and set the context for them. We pushed that out and got put that up on Moodle using Education Perfect so that that one hour we did have was the application, check understanding, doing a group activity and starting them on the analysis checking task that they would do independently. So, and then they would finish that in the independent space. So our learning for each subject was really independent space to start with, group space, check your understanding, 
start applying it, using whatever. And then the last, sorry, <laughs> then back into the independent space to finish off demonstrating what they knew. How did you sort of track that the students were doing that pre-work and post-work, that before and after? Sometimes you couldn't. And that's the really the hardest thing to adjust to when you go remote is that in a classroom, you have control over that. Like if the kid doesn't finish the work, if the student doesn't finish the work, they don't go to recess until they've finished whatever. Um, you have no control over that anymore. So your whole whole way you approach learning changes a little bit because you've got to get them to want to do the work with you. And, and that's not a bad thing. If they're actually able to self-motivate, then they, they do learn and they're choosing to learn, which is wonderful. And that's, again, education perfect. That's probably how we came across it, is that that ability to check before we'd start the lesson that the task had been done. So we'd jump in and we'd check the progress and we'd know who'd done what. So A, we knew what point to start with the lesson and we knew if anyone, if the whole class had had trouble with something, we knew we had to change our lesson. And that happened on the odd occasion too, where what we thought we were going to do had to change when we had a quick look at what the kids didn't know prior to coming in because we'd obviously over-assumed where they were at. But one of the things of the flip learning is that the kids don't get to join the class until they've done the work. So we actually had a collective decision across the year level that we would ask them to leave the class and come back when they'd done the work. And we would, we would, they would leave and then they, and they would all come back. Like right, yeah, <laughs> Everyone wow. thinks, oh, if you're told to leave the class, they're not coming back, but they do. That's an interesting strategy. Hmm. The other thing about online learning is it's really lonely for kids. Everyone thinks it's great for a week or two, don't have to go to school. But teenagers, particularly young people, school is really social for them. And then when you take that away, the online space becomes really important because it's when they're seeing someone else outside the house and seeing friends. So that's a bit of a motivation too to come back and join in the class. And did you have any other strategies for kind of Helping with that socialization, you know, making them feel like they're connecting with others. <laughs> we got really inventive with that. Um, we would do all sorts of things. Um, we would have pet days where we would put our cameras on and show our pets. That's so cool. That was really good fun. And it's funny, the really interesting thing about these activities was that kids who were really reluctant to participate in a learning space and didn't want to speak and answer questions about the subject would sometimes be the first ones who are happy to put their cameras on and show you their pet cat and all of those sorts of things. So that was really lovely. Um, a couple of my colleagues, they had they called it Travel Tuesday and kids would take turns each week picking a place in the world that they'd like to go to and they had to research it. They had three minutes at the beginning of the lesson and why did I want to go there and what would be really cool about this country? So people got really creative with different things and that was outside of the lesson. As you got to know the class, there was one class was really into music and one of the guys teaching it had a musical background and so they'd do classic albums and, you know, what was what was it about Led Zeppelin's, I can't even remember the name of the album with the triangle and the light thing on it. Um, and so they do these little stories and it's just completely unreal. And the kids would be really into it and they go, oh, my dad did this or I saw that or um, I did this on the weekend. Can I tell everyone about? And after a while, the kids would start joining in. So again, know your students. The more you know about your students, the easier it is to find that commonality 
of something. I think, um, you know, at the moment in the current climate that we're in, that those kind of things are so important because all these kids are going to go be going into a remote setting and having never been in one before and they're going to really miss that social contact that they get at school. I think we really underestimate the importance of social contact for kids with other kids. That brings its own challenges because as the teacher, you're still responsible for the safety of your classroom. And so managing the interactions between the kids, possible bullying or that safety um, brings its own challenges. But the platforms you use can be really important there. And um, recording is really important. Um, And setting the expectations with kids is important as well. Generally, if their parents are watching, you'll know straight away. In fact, you'll know before the kids tell you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, what would a typical day look like? Because obviously when you go into a remote teaching environment, it's very different to what you'd have in a traditional school where the bell rings on the hour and you go from class to class. So what would your typical day look like from a teacher's perspective? Um, It's very varied depending on the day and it depended a little bit on what you taught. So I'm a secondary teacher. So if I had a year seven, eight or nine class, uh, we saw our kids every day and we tried to actually schedule it so it was the same time each day because routine is everything. And we would try and get them into a routine around learning Um, So classes at 9.30, that means you get up, you've had your breakfast, you're on your computer by nine o'clock. At nine o'clock, you need to open Moodle, look at what the before lesson task is. If you finished it, then you get to go and play with your cat and then you come back, you log on and everything's ready to go. So we were quite explicit in expectations around that, what times we expected them to do things. And sometimes at the end of the class, if I wasn't teaching anything else, I would sometimes stay with kids okay, class is finished, but I'm staying here. While you finish your task, you can ask me any questions if you want to. Year 10, 11 and 12 was quite different because you only saw them once a week and that was a lot harder. And a lot of your time was actually spent either creating resources and putting learning materials up or doing one-on-one tutorials, ringing kids, checking through the work they'd done if they hadn't done it, getting on the phone going, hi, I can see you're struggling or you haven't started yet. Can I give you a hand? That's pretty intensive. It's, it's a lot involved in the, in the process rather than just having those one hour a week of classes. It's, it's high intensity for the teacher. It is. And it's funny because when you're in a, a face-to-face school, you have your four lessons a week and um, you'll do explicit teaching in some of those. The kids will be working on the assignment. You'll be walking around just checking how they're going. In other ones, you might do a test, however it worked. The time we had with kids was when we, was the stuff we really had to do with them. And then outside of that time, even though it wasn't scheduled, we would book time with kids, ring them, contact them. They wouldn't always answer our phone calls, let's be honest. Um, But that was when we did that follow-up to make sure that um, there was learning happening when they weren't with us. You mentioned earlier a little bit about the role that parents play. How would you communicate your expectations to parents? The relationship between teacher, student and parent changes a lot when you go remote um, because the parent is the one who's there with the student while they're learning, not you. You and the parent nearly swap over (laughs) a little bit, but they still need to be the parents. And parents get really anxious about their kids not being at school. They get anxious about their kids falling behind. They get anxious about whether they're going to be able to answer the kids' questions, particularly around mathematics and science. They get anxious about their kids not being up to speed. And so that Part of my role was to help them manage that anxiety and we used to communicate regularly with our parents. We'd meet them on enrolment and then I would ring them a lot 
And certainly in that first bit, I'd ring and go, hi, it's Beck. Um, just ring to see how you're going. Um, how's the learning set up? How's the routine going? Are you feeling okay? And then they would ask whatever questions they wanted to ask. We would do an online session with them in the same way we would do with kids if parents were anxious. We would get them to jump online either with their kid or get the student to set it up for them and we would do the one-on-one session. And they felt a lot better after they'd experienced because this is so out of the blue for parents. This is on another level, got no idea how this can even work. So doing that actually helped a lot. Um, That's a great idea to have a session with them and just yeah. go through how it all works. I think that would be very reassuring. Some parents are fine. Um, what you really want them to do is to continue to be the parent though. And we would talk really explicitly with parents about the fact your role is to just be the parent. So we don't want you to teach them the maths. We want you to help them persevere, to not give up, to if they can't do it the first time, where are they going to find the answer? Take a break, come back. So all those problem solving, perseverance, resilience, behaviours that we need around learning was what we would talk to the parents. How can you support that in your student? Our job's to do the teaching. If you're having lots of trouble, jump on the email, let us know, give us a call and we'll do a one-on-one and we'll just work this through. Being so, so open and connected with them, that's fantastic. And did you have any particular strategies that were your favourites to sort of motivate students and engage them? Above and beyond what we've already talked about. Never underestimate the value of a chocolate frog in the mail. (laughs) And we literally would, but we never sent them for getting an A or a B. We would send chocolate frogs when kids did something that they'd really struggled with or had been a really big deal for them to break through and do, like speak in class or put their video camera on or complete something at a different year level um, because we had quite varied skill abilities in our class. We would look to reward learning behaviours rather than the A, B or whatever, the A grade. Because for some kids, an A grade was easy. Um, Whereas for other kids, getting a C was like they'd worked really hard and we would post them. We post out chocolate frogs and the kids, they would get so excited. I bet they would, yeah, because it's such a novelty to receive something in the post, yeah. Yeah. The other thing we would do is there's a platform called Kahoot and we would just drop out some of the EP questions that we'd used earlier in the week and we'd put it in Kahoot and we'd have a class competition Um, and the kids loved it. I'm just going, this is really just a test. We're just doing a quick recall test of what we've done during the week. The kids loved it. And so every fortnight we do Kahoot Friday and everything we'd done over the course of that fortnight was in there, plus some general knowledge, plus maybe something someone had shared during the week in the class, plus you know something that had been in the news. And we would do 20 questions and the kids, they were right into it. They, that was big deal and so we would send out frogs for that as well oh cool that's a that's a great idea to combine the two platforms and use the questions from ep within the kahoot that's yeah. a cool idea and good to know that kahoot works through a video conference environment as well the other thing is that when you're teaching remotely online you don't have a lot of time so the kahoot became a little bit of our formative assessment as well where we were checking their understanding they had no idea. I mean, they really, they thought they were just playing Kahoot. For us, it was a bit of a formative assessment about where were our kids at? How were they going? And with Kahoot, you can actually export all the results. So you keep the data as well. Fantastic. I think, well, that's been some fantastic ideas that you've shared. In summary, do you have any advice out there for teachers who are all of a sudden kind of forced into a distance learning environment? What would be your key advice for these teachers who are listening today? Don't underestimate yourself. It's really daunting. 
Um, it's really uncomfortable when you first start, but it is for kids too. Um, just give it your best. Um, we used to say to kids a lot in trying to keep things simple because you can't see them. We, we sort of had three rules. One was um, for us, less is more. So for you, when you are moving into the remote environment, don't try and get through everything you could get through in a classroom. Distill out what the really important stuff is. Get that done first. If you've got more time and the kids are engaging with you, add the extra in. But really drill it down to what's really important because there's going to be a lot of time and energy taken just getting used to being online. Um, be kind, be kind to yourself, be kind to the kids. Don't judge them. One of the things when you go online is you're going to see and learn things about kids' families that you are completely removed from when you're at school. So we used to have this thing of no judgment, but there are barriers to learning. So what are the barriers for that child? How can we overcome that? That was really important. And probably the last one is have a go. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, go back to the drawing board and have another go. We always say there are 26 lessons in the alphabet. We could have 26 plans, um, plan A, plan B, plan C. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And you, you know your kids best. Construct the learning around your kids. And that's probably the best advice I can give. That's fantastic advice. And all of what you've spoken about has been so helpful and so insightful, I think. And I'm sure teachers who are listening to this will really take a lot from it and be able to implement that into their new teaching lives um, as a result of what's happening in the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. A pleasure. It's been really, really interesting and insightful. No worries. And good luck, everyone. It's an adventure. There's a lot of really positive things that come out of it as well. So best wishes. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you've been able to take some tips and advice from this discussion. I know I found it really interesting and learned a lot about teaching in a remote setting. One of my key takeaways was how important it is to maintain relationships and encourage socialization in the online environment. I really liked the idea of having a pet day and showing your pets on the camera. It was also a good reminder to think about the importance of routine in the remote environment and giving students some structure for their day. I also loved the idea of sending the students small rewards in the post. I hope you were also able to take away some inspiration from this interview and Beck's wealth of experience. With everyone in these extreme circumstances around the world and having to turn to remote teaching, we would love for you to share your experiences and ideas please feel free to share these in our LinkedIn group, Teaching and Learning in the Digital Age. Last of all, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the wonderful support of our producer, Paula Brass, and our brilliant sound engineer, Yasmin Novak. Thank you again for listening and look out for our next episode.